Today's scripture will be from Acts 6, 1 through 15. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 6, 1 through 15. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary family. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, Before we get into our sermon this morning, I just wanted to give a few important updates for our church family. This would typically be when uh, Gerald would pull out a stool, um, but I don't want to take that from him. That's his thing. That's his thing. So I'll just stick with the pulpit here. Um, The first thing I wanted to share is that we're really excited. We're bringing on a new staff person on our ministry staff um, the middle of August. We're bringing on Christy Spader. So we've been looking uh, for a number of months, uh, as you remember, you guys remember Pam Redman, who resigned from the position of director of women's ministry. And so we've been looking for a replacement and figuring out how to utilize that role in a number of ways. And so 
Uh, one of the conclusions we got to even before looking for a specific person was that we wanted to increase the responsibilities of this role to not just women's ministries, but also to help with small group leadership. Um, and so uh, we're bringing on Christy with increased hours from what was just the director of women's ministries that'll include that, but also leadership uh, for all of our small groups. So really excited to bring her on. She comes with a ton of experience. Um, she currently is working with Crew. For those of you that aren't familiar with Crew, uh, it is a campus ministry working with college students. Um, and so she is uh, there uh, in Ohio doing that. Uh, work, she currently oversees about 20 plus uh, uh, ministers that are also doing that with her over about seven different campuses. And so really excited to have her join our staff. Again, she'll be moving here toward the end of July and then um, officially joining our staff in the middle of August. So as we just wanted to give you guys, you know, all a heads up on that, as we think about our fall plans for women's ministries, uh, we'll give her a little grace to get her feet wet and figure all that out. Uh, but just wanted to give you a heads up now that that's coming. And again, really excited. And we'll, we'll make sure when she does officially arrive here in town and start that we, we get her in front of you all to meet her. And I think you'll love her. So uh, excited to have her. Um, the other thing I wanted to communicate is uh, you may have forgotten we needed uh, to repair our roof. Um, and it, it appeared to be kind of an expensive project. Uh, but as, as we updated you guys uh, a while back, we were able to get the insurance claim money for that, which we were really thankful for. And so the plan right now, we actually, there is some, some flat roof area that's not tiled that we're already beginning repairs on. Um, but as far as the tile part, we'll begin, we're hoping middle to end of September to start doing that. Um, and we won't be immediately repairing. Some of the tile parts of the roof are actually fine. There's just, not to get technical, but there's just some flashing issues that we think we can pull back, repair, and leave that section. Um, and so the plan is to um, do the entire sanctuary section here and some other places. And so um, we will be hopefully doing that um, again, middle to end of September, so really thankful for that. All the immediate repairs that we have to do to kind of seal the facility officially um, will be able to be funded through the insurance claim money, so we're really excited about that. And then a little bit of reserve money that we've had from the last two years of giving, which is super encouraging that we can do that. Um, we talked about three, I don't know, two, three years ago about trying to take out a loan and uh, or a line of credit to do some of that. At this point, we don't need to do that. So we're su super thankful for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lastly, I just want to thank, there's three guys that um, we've had to make some challenging decisions along the way in my, um, with this project. And my degree in ancient languages and uh, theology <laughs> did not quite prepare me for some of the complicated decisions to make. So I really want to thank uh, Ralph O'Donnell, Tim Clark, and Edwin Chung. They have uh, come alongside me. Uh, just helping in such a significant way. And so super thankful for their patience with me and uh, working with me. And, and I'm learning a ton, which is kind of fun um, So from them. So anyways, just wanted to give you those two exciting updates for us. All right, let me pray um, as we get into our text this morning. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for uh, just the, the ability to gather together this morning uh, to encourage each other, to seek your face, 
And, and may we leave here this morning refreshed in our passion to know and follow you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in the middle of a series. Uh, it's been a long series, yeah? Every time I, I have to speak on Sunday, I feel like I have to like recap everything, but I'll try not to do that to catch us up. Um, but what I want to do is uh, I have just three kind of basic movements this morning. Um, and they're alliterated, which uh, if Pastor Todd was here still, he would love the alliteration, but he's not here. So, um, but the first is just context. Context meaning where are we at in the story and what is our role in the story? Because we get a unique window into that as we get into the book of Acts, right? What is our role in this story? The story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And so the fundamental assumption in Gerald's creation of that title was the main storyline of the Bible is at its simplest how to heal this world, right? And so we all can very quickly experience and see this world and very quickly long for something better, right? We know our own weaknesses. We know the weaknesses of our friends, our family, our community, historically, globally, name it all, right? It is a broken world that needs fixing. It needs a diseased world that needs healing. And so the basic story of the Bible is just how to heal this world. And so we can find out where we fit into that story even now uh, in our, our day and age. Where Acts finds, so this context, sorry, before we get to that, context of where we, where we are in the story, where our role is in the story. The second thing is community. We get a really interesting window into the community of the early church here in Acts 6 and 7. And some of their struggles, some of the beauties of the way they handled conflict. Um, and then the last thing, the last C is Calvary. What does this mean for Calvary? What are some of the implications for us as a church? So let's start into context. Context brings us into the book of Acts. Remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he said at the very and the book of Acts. And he said at the very beginning of the book of Acts, he said this. He said, I began to tell you all that Jesus did and continues to do. So at this point now, he's telling you, even though Jesus says lived, died, and resurrected from the dead, and then went back to be with his father, he says that Jesus is continuing to do things, which is in and of itself an interesting idea, right? I mean, I think we take it for granted, but the very fact that we're saying that there was a Jewish man in the, in the first century that lived, that died, made some insane claims about himself in the world, right, and gave up his life for other people. This man came back from the dead as attested by multiple appearances and that he didn't stay on earth then, but that he went back and ascended back to be with his father. Now, if you're a Jew in this time in the first century in Jerusalem and you rejected the Jesus story, you're hoping that this Jesus story can just kind of fizzle out, right? It's like the resurrection stories made you a little nervous. You're like, if that's true, uh, we're in trouble. Then he's gone, so it's like, okay, even if it was true, he's gone, and we can pretend like it wasn't true and move on. But the challenge is the Jesus story continued to be told. The Jesus story continued to go forward in multiple speeches as we see in Acts in Jerusalem. People had not let go of Jesus. They were saying he was still continuing to work not physically like he did when he was first alive, but working through his spirit, 
The spirit that unites him to his father is a whole nother person, the Holy Spirit, that is given to his followers to continue his work on earth. That's why the church has a beautiful imagery that we call the body of Christ. So we are, by his spirit, the body of Christ in this world to continue to do the things he did. With the same spirit, he was empowered. And so in many ways, this Jesus story just won't go away. It's continuing to create problems and nag people in Jerusalem. And as we know, Jesus said the things he said about himself and did the things he did. He talked about his relationship to the law, his relationship to God, his relationship to being able to forgive people of sins. And when you talk that way, the very clear result is you lose your life, right? There's very clear reason why Jesus was crucified. He said the things he said about himself, and he did the things he did. He talked about being able to forgive people their sins. That's blasphemous in early Jewish time, right? And so that's what happens. So imagine these Jesus followers continuing to, by the spirit of Jesus, continuing to say the same things about Jesus. There's high risk in that, right? Like it's Kind of one thing, if you've got this crazy person, they want to say that about themselves, and you can like kind of distance yourself, and you'd be like, I mean, I think you're probably right, but that's on you, man. <laughs> like, and what happened to you is explainable, and I'm just going to kind of piece over here. But they didn't do that. They continued to gather. So what you see in this early church, as they wrestle with the fact that they still believe Jesus to be physically resurrected in the presence of his father, who then subsequently sent his spirit to be with everyone that followed him and believed in him, these people went back to the temple and told this Jewish story. They told this Jewish story of Jesus of Nazareth as the true savior of the world and king of Israel. They gathered in homes and they ate meals together. And who knows, I mean, you can imagine the things they kind of talked about. Like, are we really going to take this seriously? Are we really going to go out into public and live out the Jesus way? Are we really going to do this? And then they, they shared with each other. If, if someone was without, they figured out how to m make sure that person wasn't without anymore. They shared the common goods of their own properties and ownerships and figured out how to make it work for everyone. This was the church. This was the Jesus movement. These people, as they went back to temples and synagogues and preached about the Jesus narrative as the fulfillment of the Jewish story, continued to teach, continued to preach, gathered in homes, and shared with each other. This movement was not going away, which is one of the best evidences for the resurrection. You don't have this significant of a movement in Jerusalem to follow some unbelievable story. The fact that this did continue to cre be created and move was self-evident that Jesus did, in fact, come from, back from the dead, and people were following him. So this is where our story finds us. We're not going to go through all of chapter 7. It's a long sermon by Stephen. We didn't read it. But what I want to do really quick is start at the end. Because what's happening now is this Jesus movement, the story of these people that continue to follow Jesus, primarily resides in Jerusalem right now. 
The attention from Luke is in Jerusalem up until chapter 8 and verse 4. Because we remember Jesus' command at the beginning of the book of Acts that Luke records for us. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and eventually the ends of the earth. So how is that going to happen? How is this Jesus movement going to spread throughout the region beyond uh, Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Well, we find that out in chapter, if we go kind of to the end of our section, the beginning of chapter 8, we see this. And Saul approved of his execution. That is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's the scene of the early church in Jerusalem going to the end of our story today. We find out that there is intense persecution, that people are losing their lives over continuing to promote this Jesus story. And Stephen was one of them. They didn't know how this command of Jesus was actually going to take place. You are going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Little did they know it was going to happen by their commitment to Jesus leading to persecution. And that's what scattered them. So then when you go and, and, and Luke structures his book this way, so then as we leave Jerusalem and they scatter from ch- chapter 8 now to through chapter 12, it's about the gospel spreading in Judea and Samaria. And then 13 and to the end of the book is about the ends of the earth. And that is how he's, but this is how it initially happened, through persecution. Why did they stone Stephen? Why did, as we kind of work our way back to the beginning of chapter 6, we're going backwards now. Why did they stone Stephen? They stoned Stephen for saying the same things Jesus said about himself. Stephen said things about Jesus that Jesus said about himself. So guess what happens to Stephen? What happened to Jesus? When in Jerusalem, you say that there is another Jewish man that is greater than Moses and equal with God, you will be killed, just like Jesus. That's what happened to Stephen. They accused him of blaspheming and cursing Moses and eventually God himself, the creator God, by locating Jesus as better than Moses and equal with God. That's why he was, that's why he was stoned to death. But what Stephen's long sermon is, which again, I won't go into all the detail, what Stephen's answer is, is that you, in fact, are doing the rejecting. When you reject Jesus as better than Moses and, and not the Son of God, you are the ones that reject, not me. And in fact, you've been doing this from the beginning. And so Stephen goes through this long sermon and he kind of tries to pull rank. 
right? So what he does then is he says, let's, go, let's not go back to Moses. Let's go back to Abraham. And he goes even back to the beginning of the Abraham story. He goes back. Remember when Abraham was back in Mesopotamia? Do you remember when he's in Mesopotamia and God called him to leave his country and all that? Why was all that? Why did he do all that? Why did God all of a sudden choose Abraham and then the whole Bible follows this story of Abraham? Well, very simply, just to put it quickly, is to say that what's the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is the healing of the world. And so the reason why Stephen goes all the way back is to remind them that it is through Abraham's family that God chose to heal the world. That's the simple storyline of the entire Old Testament moving into Jesus. It's the simple story that it's actually Israel, Abraham's family, through which God intended to heal the world, which in and of itself is fascinating because you can imagine a lot simpler, cleaner ways for God to go about restoring creation than us, right, than human beings. There could be a lot simpler process. We only complicate things. But, as Jesus said in Simon the Pharisee's house, the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Even though he knew that the process of using people and human beings like the nation of Israel, who become a paradigm for what we all would do, the reason why he did that was because of the potential of love. Human beings are incredibly complicated and hardly at times worth investing in. Unless, unless you can tap into their love. Because in their love, they image forth the life of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Love then it is worth all the complication to restore the entire creation, even through a family, for the future hope of love. And that's, in fact, what God did. I won't go through all the story that I did in the first hour. It went way long, so I'm cutting things out. You can read it. I really genuinely encourage you to read Acts, read this chapter 7. It is a beautiful story of... Stephen saying, you don't understand your own story right. All of this was to lead to Jesus, the true Jew, the true one who would obey God, the true one who would love his neighbor as himself and love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is where we're at in the story. Stephen takes us all the way back to Abraham, brings us to the present. But then the question is, in relation to where we are now at the story, who are we? How do we fit into this story? So often we read the Bible, and it just sounds as it is, an ancient story about ancient people doing ancient things. But then all of a sudden you read about these human interactions that sound overwhelming and impossible, of love and peace and joy through hardship and pain. And so we're compelled. And so where do we find ourselves in the story? The way we find ourselves in the story is that God cannot heal the world unless he is present with the people through whom he decides to heal the world. 
So it's not as if God just launches us into the world to fix it on our own. We cannot fix it on our own. The only way humanity, through God's story of Israel, can heal the world is if God localizes himself with us. Then when God localizes himself, those people can be empowered to do things only the Father, Son, and Spirit can do. Made in his image. And so what do you have from the very early? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, we don't even know how big Eden was. We know there was a garden in it. And we know this garden was a temple for human beings to dwell with God. And this temple was to reach the ends of the earth. That was cut short quick, right? And then you have God saying, I'm not going to give up on my life being fulfilled in human beings to the ends of the earth. I'm not giving up on that project. I'm committed to it. I'm so committed, as I said, I think last time, I'm going to invest myself in it. So I'm going to look, and I continue to localize myself. And so he does that in the pillar of fire by night, in the pillar of cloud by day as he guides Israel. He does that by having them create a taber tabernacle in which he can reside. He does that with Solomon. But Solomon, they, they, God's presence is so important to them. They say, this tabernacle is not enough. We need to build you a house, God. So they, he says, fine, not him, but him. So he let Solomon build a temple for him. And so they build this huge house for God so that to just ensure that God would localize himself because the only way that the healing of the world can move forward through people is if God localizes himself. That's a complicated story, the temple. And in the end of the day, all of it leads to the most important way that God localizes himself. John, very early on in his letters, says... The word dwelt or tabernacled among us. Jesus dwelt and tabernacled among us. He was the localized presence of God. Because we need the presence of God to get beyond just the temple in Jerusalem or beyond just where the tabernacle goes. Jesus came so that he could perpetuate all at once, the life and the presence of God in the world. So Jesus says, just for a moment, the localized presence of God is going to be in me. But if you hang with me, and this is where we fit into the story in Acts, is when I eventually leave to go back to my father, it's going to be for your benefit that I leave. We think, ah, is it really that beneficial for, for Jesus to leave? It'd be nice to have him in this room ask him a few questions, right? But he says, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. The Spirit can do things all at once that I'm limited in my body to do. So I'm going to go back to be with my Father, as I've earned that, and I'm going to send my Spirit so that my localized presence is now going to go wherever my Spirit goes. And my Spirit is going to be with every single human being that is committed to following me. Amen. So the temple of God, and this is why the New Testament authors Peter and, uh, and Paul talk about the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Not the constructs of the building, as beautiful it is, but the human beings, the commitment to human beings through whom he's going to heal the world. That is our role, to step into the Abraham story to be the people through whom God is going to restore creation as the people through whom he localizes himself. This is who we are. 
we are as Luke says and Jesus says, his witnesses. We're witnesses that through Jesus' spirit, he's still alive and active. That's context. All right. Now community. What's beautiful about now going all the way back to Acts, the early part of Acts chapter 6, is this picture we get of the community, this church. What did it look like? What was it doing? Well, I listed a few things about still continuing to teach in the temples and the synagogues and gathering in homes and, and sharing with each other. We have this interesting story, though, in Acts chapter 6. There's categories of people called Hebrews and Hellenists. As best we can tell, they are probably both Jewish. But what you have with the Hellenists is they were Greek-speaking Jews. And what you have with the Hebrews would be Hebrew-speaking Jews or Semitic-speaking Jews, okay? Now, you may think, well, that's all one culture then. They're all Jews. Well, we all know that with differing language comes differing culture, right? With differing language comes differing culture. There were significant cultural differences between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, right? These, so that's the situation, is that you have this context, and then what was happening was that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Remember, they were gathering in homes and distributing food. They were being neglected. What I find so fascinating as we look into this is a few, is a few things I want to kind of just share here. First, seeing the response of the apostles, who would have been the majority Hebrew-speaking culture, right? So they would have been, they would have represented the majority Hebrew-speaking Jewish culture. When the non-majority Greek-speaking culture present to them a problem that people within the culture that they represent are being left behind, what do the apostles not do? It's not so much initially what do they do, but it's what do they not do that's so fascinating to me. Well, first, let me ask you, what do you do when people accuse you? I know for me as a leader, if people bring an accusation to me about things, because remember, the apostles are overseeing all of this. So under the apostles' oversight, there were Greek-speaking widows that were being forgotten. That's on them. That's their responsibility. It shouldn't have happened. It happened. So the accusation is brought to them, and what do they say? Or what do they not say? They don't say, come on, really? Is that really your experience? Are they really being left behind? I mean, they should have shown up at this place or that place, and then they could have gotten what they needed. They didn't come up with all these excuses why their experience and story wasn't true. They didn't even try to assess if the story was true or not. They didn't even need to say, I'm sure your story is true. They didn't, they didn't try to affirm it. They didn't try to question it. All they did was say, I'm guessing, and my best understanding of this story is 
they heard people from inside a culture saying their people within their culture are being left behind. And so the apostles, instead of being defensive and saying all the reasons why they're not being left behind, simply just said, you probably know the best way to resolve that problem, <laughs> right? So they're not even saying, okay, maybe it's probably true, but we'll, we'll trust ourselves with the resources and we'll figure out a way to address the problem. No. They immediate real, re, immediately realized that the Greek-speaking widows being forgotten was on them and they didn't have the resources to figure it out. So they said to the Greek-speaking leaders that brought it to their attention, brought the accusation to them, they said, how do we give you the resources and empower you to fix this problem? And now remember, this isn't necessarily just a side conversation that happens. As we see, they said, um, what they said pleased the whole gathering. So this would be like this side, you're, you're saying like in a live time gathering, your widows are being left behind by these people. And we bring that to the whole community. And so we say, well, then you probably have the resources to figure it out. How do we empower you and move on and resource so that the whole is better? There's no defensiveness. There's no arguing. There's just fix this problem. There's no even sense of like, well, we know this is going to be a risk if we give them these resources, but well, I guess we're kind of hands are tied behind our back. Or there's no like, checking and balances, making sure they do it right. They literally just empower Greek-named leaders to provide a solution to the problem they believed. What a powerful expression. Why did they do this? Why did they do this? Not because their own culture was their primary identity. They have another story. So they have their culture story, but they have another story. They have the Jesus story. They have the Jesus story. And in the Jesus story, they were able to respond as Jesus would have responded. To see the need and figure out how to empower and address and fix the need. Instead, instead of being defensive, argumentative, they believed just like 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love assumes the best. Love assumes the best. In the power of this spirit-indwelt community, in the power of the spirit, Jesus spirit-indwelt community, they were able to take a meaningful conflict, potential conflict like this, and assume the best, and empower, and move on. What? What a powerful story this is for us as we think about our own ways that we can push back. We can think things aren't believable and have, need to have evidence and proof. But instead, they thought about it from the perspective of the one being left out, and said, that's the biggest concern. That's the biggest concern. This is the Jesus community, the people that believed in the story of Jesus of Nazareth as the means through which God is going to restore the world. These are the spirit-empowered presence 
of God in the world. What does this mean for Calvary? We have, and I've talked with Gerald about this a number of times and other staff too, we have confessedly underutilized deacons in our church. At the very best, and I've talked to the deacons about this, we've talked to the elders about this, at best we've picked out isolated individuals to do an isolated ministry project and, and bring leadership there. But we have failed to collect a team of deacons that can work together as a significant leadership team within our community to better help us address all the needs in the church to make sure as best as we can that none are forgotten. And so what we hope to see moving forward as we continue with conversations with uh, the elders is to create a diaconate that works alongside and with the elders and ministry staff. And what's so interesting about this here, and we don't really see, we see different functions and roles that they play as deacons develop. So as, as best as we can tell, this scene of deacons in, in Acts chapter 6 is probably not officially the office of deacon as we see in Timothy. But I, th I think uh, Pastor Eric said it really well last week. He said this is like pre-deacons. This probably isn't the establishment of deacons in the church, but it absolutely was the kind of values that ultimately led to a deacon office being created. These are the kind of situations and values that the local church had to create something like an official office of deacons, right? Clearly, continued people were being left behind, so much so that we had to create an office. An office in the church, a team of people, was created and powered for the sole concern that people could be left behind. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And so what we hope here at Calvary is to build, at, we are in conversation now to try to identify a team, a diaconate, that will work alongside with the elders and the ministry staff. And as a whole, a kind of three-pronged effort of leadership in the church, we can do as best as we can to serve each other. One of the beautiful things about this story, as we see it in conjunction with Stephen's speech and the, the specific need within the community, is we don't get to choose between caring for those in the family and trying to reach those outside the family. We do not get to choose which one is the priority or which one gets more or less time. We have to sit in the tension of how to do both. And it will not be done perfectly. But we have to. What's beautiful about this picture is the Jesus community, this church, is showing an intense effort to care for all the people within and continuing to reach people outside of the family all at the same time. And clearly, it led to oversight by the apostles, right? Because they were so focused on one particular thing, they're forgetting about a whole group of people right under their noses. Maybe that's fair. And so what do we have to do? We have to identify and empower leaders to ensure that we have a better sight of the whole. As we continue to build this out, I hope that we can see some basic core calling, some simplicity into what it means to be the church. 
to care for each other, to listen to each other, to assume the best of each other, to understand each other's stories and hurts and pains. So that as the community around us doesn't, isn't compelled by, wow, you are so smart, you have all the right ideas. What the community around us is compelled by is like, how does that group of people love each other, even though oftentimes so different, whether ethnically or politically or whatever the difference may be, but that we can figure out a way in Jesus to love each other and to move forward to address each other's needs and concerns. That's why Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. By your love. This expression in Acts 6 is an expression of love for the whole community. It is good for the whole community to see things that often get overlooked, to address those and to fix them. That is our calling as a church here in 2021, Oak Park, Illinois. We do not have everything figured out, far from it. But we do, what we can do is bring the image of God to this world. And there's no better way to do that than love. I love the way this ends in closing, is to see these seven men that were chosen, that is kind of a trajectory toward a, a full deacon. They commission them. They see him. They don't just say kind of on the side. It's not like the whole community talks about it and they're like, well, I don't want to ruffle some feathers and if we make such a big deal of this, then, you know, um, they're going to think we're making too big of a deal of it. Why don't you guys just go figure it out and then make it go away? Let's address it in front of the whole church. Let's name them and let's empower them to say they are doing gospel work as the body of Christ. And so my hope is to have these people identified working with the elders. So the simple task of Pastor Gerald when he returns is to help commission them. That is the hope. This is our calling as a body of Christ. And where we as a leadership team have not fully mobilized as we ought, we just have to name it and move on as in, in the apostles showed us. The apostles didn't show us how to perfectly never oversee things. They, they didn't see something they should have. But because of the ability to, Peter knew what it meant to repent of sins. <laughs> we of all people should be able to receive critique because we know we're sinners. We know we're failures and broken. And to just listen. And so this is what the example. So we listen and we try to make change for the good. The process of change won't go perfect. Once we think we have the change, it won't be perfect either. But we will continue to, to wrestle and toil to love as best as we can, even when loving risks our own reputations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for being a God of second chances. There's so many places in which 
I have failed, we as a church have failed, everyone here has failed in so many ways. But the beauty is we don't have to live in our failures. We can look to you to strengthen us, to forgive us, to empower us, to be people who extend the very mercy and grace you extended. So I pray that you would do that in our church. Thank you for your word and thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this church family. Pay us all. In Jesus' name, amen.